So we're at the start of chapter 13, and we're going to go through this pretty quickly today because it's just common sense advice, a lot of it, and some closing uh, wishes and so forth. The author's closing remarks and admonitions, and I'll be going through some of this, like I say, really quickly. So let's go to verse 1. It says, Keep on loving each other as brothers, and do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. More than likely, he's probably referring to the story of Abraham entertaining angels, and Abraham may not have realized right away that they were special messengers, or he could be referring to Lot, who protected some angels, the same angels, or maybe some other in instance. But the fact is, is that we need to be hospitable, whether it's angels or not. It's easy to go down to the Oneg Hall and sit with a few old friends and just be obvious to all the new people. So they sit alone. You know, the elders and the greeters make sure they're greeted on the first week, but then when they come back the second week and they go into... Uh, just the regular uh, population, so to speak, uh, it's the up to the rest of us to make sure that they continue to, be, to feel welcome. And while uh, they may not be angels, they may certainly turn out to be good friends of yours in the future. Uh, if you reach out today, not to mention that they are already followers of Messiah and brothers in Messiah. And so the point is that we need to watch out for the new people and make them feel at home. Verse 3 says, Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. You know, there's prison ministries built around this verse. But the fact is that those in prison here are referred to, are, is referring to fellow believers who at this time are being persecuted and jailed. Not that we shouldn't have prison ministries, but I just want to keep this in context for you. That's more than likely what it's referring to. And verse 4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. I don't think we need to waste too much time here. If you don't think adultery is sin, please refer to Exodus chapter 20, Matthew chapter 5. And if you don't think it applies to you, go to Romans 13. And you'll see that we are to keep our marriage bed pure. Verse 5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So, we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Okay, so he quotes here these in regard to storing money and how much we have. However, we would do well to apply this to other areas of our lives because people seem to worry about all kinds of things. The days ahead, the government, and all the while, they're worrying about these things they have no control over. Their lives are crumbling around them for lack of faith. They worry about things that need no worry because, like the author says, what can man do to me? Man can do nothing to us. And the way, anyway, I don't want to spend a lot of time here today, but we would all do well when we face worries of this life to remember things like Psalm 20, verse 6. It says, 
Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Not only that, you might want to remember Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Chapter uh, chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Yeshua, the Messiah, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen? Now that verse I like. It says, remember your leaders. And notice it says, it's plural. And at this time, the congregations had plural leaders. They had elders, so to speak. Our congregation does as well. We at Sar Shalom have elders who lead. They're the servants. Uh, I also take part a little bit in leading, trying to keep the community basically just rolling in the John 4.23 direction, though. And I'm not going to spend much time here because I'll be honest with you, people think when you talk about things like this that you're being a little self-serving. But you should learn to uh, respect your elders and treat them well. Uh, Treat them kindly for all the work they do to make sure you have a safe place to worship the Holy One. Blessed be He. Amen? Verse 9 says, Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Now, you know, there are some, and I've heard some take this and and point to communion. And while communion is a strange meal in that it was, in the first century, it was never eaten weekly or monthly, but yearly. And it doesn't really, as some believe, turn into the actual body and blood of Messiah in your mouth. That's not what is being referred to here. He's probably referring to some temple offerings, which more than likely some have attributed some mystical value to, to those who eat them, something that they don't deserve because there is no mystical value there. Uh, That's why he says, which are of no value to those who eat them. Think of them. He's referring to the priests. They don't endear you to God. They don't make you holy. Look at the priests. Look at Caiaphas. He ate sin offerings and peace offerings all of his life, and yet he condemned Messiah. So, uh, did it help him spiritually? Didn't do much for him, did it? No. So, it says, we have an altar from which those, uh, which those who minister in the tabernacle have no right to eat. The priests in the temple cannot share in the kingdom unless they turn to Yeshua. The offerings don't have a value to do that. We have an offering of Messiah Yeshua and the Holy Spirit guiding us, and we need... We do not need offerings of any kind of spiritual food to help us draw near to God. And he's saying the only way to receive this is through Messiah Yeshua. He's been really playing throughout the whole book. The other thing here is uh, what I preach on often, but I mean it does a little good. Sometimes I think I'm talking to the walls. But it says stay away from strange teachings. Listen, we live in the day of strange teachings. They are the blight of our existence. And the vehicle for all those strange teachings is the internet. Please, if you're new to this movement particularly, stay away from the internet until you get grounded in, in the truth. 
And that's all I'm going to say because, like I say, people don't listen anyway. But Verse 11. <laughs> the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Yeshua also suffered outside the gate to make people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we, look, we are looking for a city that is to come. Through him, Messiah, then let us continually offer up praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips. And give thanks to his name. And here's where I really wanted to get today because I do think this needs some explanation. Some understanding. I've heard some use this passage to justify long rabbinical liturgical services. And they say we should emulate the prayer services of the Orthodox synagogues. And they make it sound very convincing, but I want to say, do you think it's correct? They play on this word continual, offer up, continually offering up sacrifices, and say that the word continually in English is the word tamid in Hebrew. Tamid, as in the tamid offerings in the temple, the daily offerings in the temple. They were continually offered. One morning, one evening, there was always an animal on the altar. Tamid offerings of the temple. And yes, the word does mean continually. Continual. So, the daily service offered an animal each morning and evening so that there was a continual offering on the altar at all times. That's why it was called the tamid or the continual offering. And so they make the, this point. They say that being, we should be continuing in the temple prayers that were said daily, which they really mean and I think we should continue in the temple prayers, but what they really mean is the prayers of the Siddur. So, how does the Tamid offering become prayers all of a sudden? Right? Well, they use this uh, phrase, the fruit of our lips, or the calves of our lips, to go to Hosea. Hosea 14, verses 1 and 2 says, Return, O Lord, to... Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take with you words and turn to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity and receive us graciously so we render the calves of our lips. And the thing I want you to see here is this version renders it calves of our lips. Others will say bulls of our lips. The Septuagint and the book of Hebrews Render it, I think, correctly, the fruit of our lips. Not the calves or the bulls of our lips, but the fruit of our lips. The Hebrew Bible reads this way. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Forgive all iniquity and accept what is good. We offer the words of our lips instead of bulls. So they just come flat out and say... Change it to words. So again, they use the term bulls. The point is that when the temple was lost in 70 common era, when the offerings were lost, the rabbis were faced with a dilemma. No offerings. No sin offerings for atonement. And so they lit on this verse and stretched its meaning to say that the prayer lips actually replaced 
the calves and the bulls that were offered in the temple to make atonement for the people. Thus, on Yom Kippur, we have this litany of the rabbis for atonement of sins. They do prayers of Yom Kippur to atone for the sins of the people. Now let me ask you, does the reciting of this litany of the rabbis on Yom Kippur atone for sins? Not at all, because God is quite clear. He said, I have given the blood for the atonement. Does God hear repentance of the people? Well, yes, he does hear the fruit or the calves or the bulls, whatever you like, of our lips. He hears and he's pleased at repentance, but do the rabbis' prayers atone for sins, the, the sins that they confess? Not if you believe the Bible. Amen? It's clear. No blood, no atonement. So anyway... That's what the rabbis thought, but there are some in the Messianic movement who read the rhetoric of the rabbis concerning this and institute a long series of synagogue prayers in their services. I want to show you how the rabbis substantiated this, and this is exactly what I've been telling you. This is from Mayam Loez. It says, the prophet here teaches the way of repentance. Take with you words in return to the Lord. There is no need for burnt offerings or sacrifices. Words alone can be sufficient. Acknowledge your transgressions before God and return to the Lord. Though repentance through repentance that includes confession, one becomes a new person. In effect, speech nullifies past actions. Thus it says, return, O Lord, or return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled in your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Why are words sufficient? Scripture says, that when we accept what is good, God regards us as having become new creatures. David, King David said similarly, I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity. I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you gave me the, you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah, I am a new creature. It goes on to say, say to him, Forgive all iniquity and accept what is good. They will entreat God to forgive their iniquity, including willful transgressions. Accordingly, it says, we will offer the words of our lips instead of bulls. When our unwitting transgressions are removed as well, there will be no need to bring a sacrifice. The obligation to bring a bull offering will be satisfied with the offering of our lips and repentance. And so you see how they've twisted the verse. And so they're equating the offering of prayer and repentance as a substitute for the offerings of Leviticus. This commentary, you have to understand, is written after the destruction of the temple and reflects this dilemma of the Jewish people. Having no temple and no way to atone for sin any longer. So we have to ask ourselves, is it correct should we as believers in Messiah, Yeshua, follow this type of thinking and join this, the rabbi's formula uh, for prayer? Is that what the author means here? Because there's some, uh, that's what you hear in some messianic teachings. Well, there's a real problem here. And the first is there's nothing that can atone for your sins except for Yeshua, the Messiah. The authors made that clear. He said, the blood of goats and bulls never took away sins. So if you replace the blood of goats and bulls with the fruit of your lips, what have you accomplished? Nothing. 
because it never took away sins to start out with. Just the fruit of your lips accomplishes the if the just the fruit of your lips accomplishes the same thing as goats and bulls did, they had a, it's accomplishing nothing. Not only that, what a great witness to the Jewish people, right? Yeah, you're right. All you have to do is confess your sins and you're all good to go, right? You don't need Messiah. You just need these prayers. The only thing that brings about atonement is Messiah, and the authors made that clear. So it's not a possible rendering. I want to read one more place that I found interesting to show what they've taught. The Talmud teaches that Abraham asked how the Jewish nation would attain forgiveness without a temple. God replied that when the people of Israel recite scriptural order of the offerings, God will consider it as if they had brought the offerings and they will be forgiven. The principle is cited by the prophet who said, let our lips substitute for bulls, be a substitute for bulls. So again, they're attributing something to this verse that is not supported by the rest of the word of God. You know, if you take this, this verse is taking, uh, taking this verse, it was written before the dispersion of the northern kingdom. And written in search of Israel's repentance. God is asking Israel to repent. Written so that Israel would return to God and turn away from the golden calves that they had set up in Dan and Bethel and back to God. It's not saying that words would replace the offering. It's saying repent with words and assumes that then you will return and make the offerings. Amen? In no way does it justify our using rabbinic formulas for prayer that we find in Sadur's as some messianic teachers have put forth. The fact is, while they say this is what the author means, the fact is, if not, the majority of the prayers that are in our Sadur's had not even been written at this time, at the writing of the book of Hebrews, and were never used in the temple. And I'll speak more of that in a moment. I'm going to show you what went on in the temple. But first, let's be sure that the author is not telling us that we need to adhere to all of the, the litany of the rabbis. And uh, he uses the term fruit of our lips in a different way. He's using it to remind us that of a privilege that we have as followers of Messiah. We have this direct relationship with God through prayer our ability is to hear directly and to speak to God directly, to participate in this new covenant that we have, and to praise God with the words of our lips. It says nothing about atonement being secured with words. He's already addressed atonement. It is through Messiah. And he says here, let through, the, through him let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips that give thanks to his name, right? The author's not trying to tell us that the synagogue service of today replaces the offerings, nor does he even have repentance in mind. He's telling us that the fruit of our lips is for the purpose of offering praise to God for the offering, for the forgiveness, and for the atonement that has already been secured for us in Messiah Yeshua. Amen? The fact is, I'm going to be honest with you, if you're going through the litany of the rabbis because you think that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here, you're wasting your time as those prayers, for the most part, were formulated by the rabbis to secure what you already have in Messiah. Right? 
They'll never do that. Not just that, but as I said, most of those prayers weren't even written at this time. There was no Siddur. Now, you ask, and I know this is coming, I know it's on most of your lips. Well then, Stan, why do we have the prayer service this morning that uses some of the prayers in the Siddur? Well, it's easy. Some of the prayers in the Siddur were used at this time and were used in the temple daily. Listen to what we're told of the disciples in Acts chapter 2, verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Okay, so they meet in the temple courts. And if we move just a little bit forward to chapter 3, verse 1, it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. And so what we find is, is that the early disciples, while they were still allowed by the priests, did participate in the temple prayers. And so if we want to return to our roots, if we want to worship the Lord in spirit and truth, right? Then maybe we need to consider this, right? If you want to return to the worship as it was when Yeshua said, true worshipers worship in spirit and truth, uh, we need to look at what the disciples were doing, right? However, the temple, let me just say one thing, the temple prayers and the litany that you find in the Siddur are two different calves of your lips, so to speak. Amen? Now, here's what our service is made up. It's made up almost completely of the prayers that were said in the temple. And while I don't have time to do a complete teaching on it, I'm going to read some portions from the Encyclopedia Judaica. It says, It is certain, however, that the institution of the reading of the Shema originated entirely in the temple service. At the morning service, the priest read the Ten Commandments and the Shema and recited several benedictions. Second and doubtless later division of the daily liturgy is the prayer consisting of the 18 benedictions, 